the teaching ministry of Judah Olorimaye, a man called of God to compel consecration, provoke repentance, and inspire worship by the preaching and teaching of God's word and the miraculous demonstration of God's power. God's word is about to hit you as light and strength. Get ready for an encounter with grace. We'll see why we are using the text as we continue in the conversation. Matthew 5 and verse 16. Okay. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Go ahead. Verse 17. Go to Matthew 5, 14, please. 14 must be my text there. All right. So Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world, a city that is set on an hill cannot be hid. You are the light of the world, a city that is set on an hill cannot be hid. By the grace of God, we will consider the subject Christianity in America. We want to examine Christianity from an historical perspective in the United States of America. When I say America, I'm not just talking about America as a general geographical location. There's North America, there's South America. I'm talking about the United States of America, and I'll soon show you why we're actually discussing about Christianity in America. But let us quickly pray. Holy Spirit, grant us insights to this discussion. Let there be clarity and comprehension. Let the lessons learned stay in our hearts forever. In Jesus' name, we have prayed. Christianity in America. Well, America is a very um, crucial country. Um, in today's Christian context, many of the people you call God's generals are Americans. Many of the people you follow, Andrew Womack and Kenneth Hagin, many of the people we try to imitate and we have learned Christianity from many of them, particularly this generation, are Americans. Many people even think that Christianity began in America. Well, we showed you. We have just entered. Our conversation today is from about 1650 to late 1700s. And we've shown you where Christianity started from. The American picture just came in just some hundreds of years ago. But, you know, many people are not educated enough to understand that. America is actually a new country with respect to Christianity because most of us feel that, ah, America is the headquarter of Christianity. They also um, previously have really identified with God in all honesty. In fact, they are described or they describe themselves as God's own country. You see it on their dollar note, in God we trust. They used to be, not anymore actually, but they used to be a, perhaps, perhaps the most influential Christian nation, particularly when we enter into the 19th century. It's a far cry from what we have now, very far cry. If you study history and see where America is coming from and where it is now, you weep. You weep for the land. In the 60s, and I'm talking about 1960, 1950, thereabout, 
Easter celebration was a national celebration. The same way gay pride is a national celebration now, in the 50s and in the 60s, Easter celebration was a massive national celebration. Everybody was shut down, everywhere was shut down just to acknowledge the fact that Jesus died and America is God's own contrast. I was watching Corey Blake and he was, he was a soldier and, um, during the World War. After many soldiers were interviewed when America won the war, you see that in their statements of acknowledgement, they often mention God. Oh, they'll say, oh, God was with us. God fought for us. In fact, they admitted that one of the reasons why the other nations lost the battle was that they were atheists and they did not believe in God. American soldiers were trained to admit that their victory was from God. Not anymore. These days in American movies, mentioning God will not even allow your movie to travel far. You cannot win a Grammy or rather an Oscar award or win any other movie award if you have any sentiment of religion or Christianity in your movie. It's a very sad case. But we want to see the beginning, how the American nation um, opened itself gradually to Christian influence, how Christianity shaped America, and how America shaped Christianity. That's what we want to consider um, tonight. So it's a whole lot of um, um, discussion, but we're going to narrow our emphasis to just about three sentiments or three subjects. We're going to deal with a group of people called the Puritans, and then we're going to deal with two other people, George Whitefield, more detailed than we did last week, and Jonathan Edwards. So that will give us an idea of how things began to unfold um, around the 1700, especially. Are we clear? All right. So let's start from these guys called the Puritans. They have been acknowledged as one of the most influential groups in American history. By the way, like I said, America is not really too old a nation. Uh, if you study contemporary or secular history, you will see that it was discovered and then many people began to migrate into it. And that's why America has several combinations. You have Asian Americans, you have African Americans, you have European Americans, you have English Americans, uh, you have um, South American Americans, as it were, or people from Mexico. It's, it's a combination of several cultures and tribes because it was discovered late. In fact, we have Chinese Americans because by the time you study the geography, you see how Russia and China are from the other extreme end close to America. Even though from the other interior end, it's close to Europe. It's quite a very massive country. Um, so the name United States of America is really a very accurate description. It's a combination of several countries, actually. Right? So, but it was discovered, and then many people began to migrate into it. Last week, I said it in person, but I'm going to explain thoroughly tonight. That many people were looking for a new lease of life, starting, or trying to start life afresh. We were very quick to travel to America, particularly criminals or people with criminal records and Christians who were persecuted from the established church authority. That's where the guys called the Puritans come in. Now to understand the Puritans, we have to remember what we said with respect to the reformation that took place in the Church of England. The 
Roman Catholic hold on the church was resisted in England, just like it was resisted in France. But the English Reformation was more political than religious. The king wanted to control England. He didn't like the fact that the Pope was controlling England. And so he decided to break out from the influence of the Roman Catholic Empire and then set up the Anglican Church. But the Anglican Church was still, in all honesty, an extension of the Roman Catholic Church. The only difference was that it was more English than Italian. Are we still together? The Protestants in England, by Protestants, we refer to Christians all over the world who rejected established Roman Catholic government. We saw them in Germany under the leadership of Martin Luther. We saw them in Swiss. Um, John Calvin was leading and spearheading many of those Protestant activities. John Knox also in early times. But then, Protestants refer to people who reject the established Catholic church structure. So the Protestants in England were not satisfied with the Anglican setup. Now, you guys have left the Roman Catholic establishment, but you still do what they do. The way they serve the communion is the way you serve the communion. The way they preach is the way you preach. The way you teach is the way they teach. Your beliefs have not changed. And so many of these Protestants began to object to the Anglican Reformation, as it were. And they began to insist that more was done to really break away from the Catholic influence. By the way, the Puritans were the bulk of the Protestants in Anglicans, or in England, rather. They were the bulk of them. And many of them were very influential. Very influential, very educated. In fact, many of them were in the Senate and in the House of Assemblies, as it were, in those days. And um, it was a very powerful influence to act in government and still also act as Christians. So there was even a war that broke out because of their agitations. I taught you about a man called Cromwell, who actually was like the leader of the Protestant movement in England, but eventually his reign did not last long. And when a new king was established, then persecution resumed. They began to kill and to hunt for these guys called the Puritans. And so they began to relocate, began to look for where they could settle down. And one of the places they identified was actually the United States of America. Are we still together? In today's ignorant generation, many people think of the Puritans as some minority group who were illiterate and who hated anything that was pleasurable. In fact, somebody was asked to define a Puritan, and he said, a Puritan is somebody who's always suspecting that somebody else is having fun. Uh, that's a very illiterate way to look at the subject, and many people really have to understand this thing from history. Um, many Christians today, too, do not appreciate the background of Puritans, particularly their writings, and many of their church leaders. But if you ask Christians that are a bit elderly and they tell you about Christian Puritan books, you will see that um, a bulk of what happened 100 years ago, 200 years ago, we powered and driven by the right tops of these people called Puritans. Yes, they were very conservative, and we'll discuss some of their um, disposition to life soon. 
but to suggest that they were ignorant, illiterate, nah, or they were not happy people, or they hated anything that was, you know, in the direction of pleasure and joy, it is not true. The reason why they left England to look for a new settlement was because the new king was persecuting them, and they decided to go somewhere else. Something else about the Puritans, they were not just concerned about reformation in the Anglican church. As far as they were concerned, the whole essence of reformation in the church was so that society would be influenced. The Puritans felt that the church was a means to change society. We cannot just be comfortable with a holy church. The whole idea of a holy church is so that we can have a healthy society. That was the indoctrination of the average Puritan. And so they felt that changing geographical location was going to give them an opportunity to start afresh and then colonize an actual city or town or territory for God. Beyond what happens in church, we want a city, we want a country, we want a nation, a society that is strong, that is morally sound. That was what was in the mind of the average Puritan. And so the text we read, Matthew 5, 14, described what the Puritans wanted to achieve. They took those words of Jesus as straightforward as it sounded. A city set on a hill that cannot be hid. And so when they left England, their leader, um, John Winthrop, who was actually the first governor of Massachusetts. Massachusetts was the first place the Puritans settled when they left England. Massachusetts is in the United of America. Um, their leader, John Winthrop, preached a sermon on the ship. And he told them that we are going to America not just for a better life, not just to escape persecution. We want to create a new country. This country will be like the country of Israel. It will be run by the word of God, run by the laws of God. It will be a society of God. And he told them that he believed that the Puritans had a covenant, special covenant with God. And that if they responded well to the covenant, God was going to bless them economically, financially. But if they did not respond well to the covenant, they were going to suffer, or they were going to suffer lots of hardships and toils and pain. So the Puritans went to America with that kind of a mentality. It wasn't just about reforming the church, it was about influencing society. Are we still together? Okay. The Puritans wanted to be different from the established church in a couple of things. The first was doctrinally. They were more on the side of the teachings of John Calvin. And so the subject of Calvinism, which emphasizes predestination and the fact that God's sovereignty decides who gets saved and who gets damned was something very popular. What I mean is that the Puritan subscribed to Calvinism as a doctrine. What is Calvinism? Calvinism is from the man, John Calvin. And one of the things he emphasized is predestination. It means that, according to him, God has already decided everybody who will be saved. All right? When people are born and they grow up, they will now discover if they are amongst those that are saved. That was a major doctrine of the Puritans. But then, the Roman Catholic people also believed some part of that. But the Roman Catholic people suggested 
that it was by works, by effort, by things like taking the Holy Communion, things like giving money to the Pope, that you can enter into the predestined salvation. And so the Puritans did not agree with that. A few other things that the Puritans wanted, what is referred to as um, sola scriptura, which simply means only scripture. They felt and they believed that the Bible is the only authority. Only authority. Everything the Christian must do or, or does must be from the Bible. The Roman Catholic establishment felt that the Pope and other religious leaders also had a say with respect to Christian authority. And even the Pope can override some of the things in the Bible. So those are a few things that the Puritans um, you know, were agitating for or agitating against. But a couple of other things that were very interesting to note as I studied. They had very simple church life. They did not believe in decorations. You know, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, or churches were very decorated. Gold and silver plates or plates and paintings and many images and all of that. The Puritans said church life should be simple. In fact, they refused to sing any Christian hymn. The only thing they sang were psalms. So, and they did not sing it with a constant melody. Someone just opened um, Psalm 23, for instance. And he will begin to sing it how he likes it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not. They believe only Bible. The only Bible. If you bring any other thing, we don't want. Of course, those were extreme beliefs, but they were just very loyal to the Bible in a very aggressive way. They also did not allow for any musical instruments to be played. They were a cappella. You just clap your hands, all you people, shout to the Lord with a voice of triumph. There's no drum. There's no violin, there were no strings. All of the things that Martin Luther seemingly liked and preached in his German settlement with respect to music, these guys were not having it. Okay. Are we still together here? All right. When they settled in America, they began to make progress with respect to societal influence. Let it be clear that when they settled, they came to this place, like I mentioned, Massachusetts. And in all honesty, settling there was not easy because that particular place had inhabitants already. And the inhabitants were very, they called Native Indian Americans. Those guys were not godly people. So, I mean... You want to, if they saw them as thieves, you want to come and steal our land. I will soon show you why that conversation is important when we begin to discuss the life of Jonathan Edwards. But they settled in um, after a while, and then they began to enforce laws. They ensured that whoever was pastoring them was also um, involved in some form of political leadership. So they mixed to an extent the laws of the state and the laws of the church. For instance, they insisted anybody living in Massachusetts must come to church. If you don't come to church, you'll be fined or you'll be punished. This is not about uh, me. Uh, I'm not a Christian. If you are living in Massachusetts, 
you must come to church. So they began to impose their beliefs on the environment. All settlers were required to attend church services and were subject to church discipline. The Lord's Supper, however, was reserved to full members only. Puritans practiced infant baptism, but only church members in full communion could present their children for baptism. Members' children were considered part of the church and covenant by birth and were entitled to baptism. Nevertheless, these children would not enjoy the full privileges of church membership until they provided a public account of conversion. Let me explain to you. How many of you have been asked, where were you born again? And how many of you have been asked like that? Okay. How many of you have been asked to describe your born again experience? Okay. And for some people like us, we cannot really explain. If you lived under the Puritan rule and they ask you, where were you born again? And you say, I shall know I'm born again. You know, go to Holy Communion. You must be able to give a public, vivid description of your salvation. Let it be clear that that was not something the Roman Catholic Church believed and practiced. The concept of new birth, being born again, was not really embraced in the Roman Catholic Church. But the Puritans taught it and they insisted everybody must have, even though they believed in predestination, you must have a public witness of your personal salvation. People who were not full-blown members of the church were not allowed to vote and some human rights were withdrawn from them. So, they were actually creating a state that was very exclusive. That's very dangerous because this was the same thing they were trying to avoid in England. Interestingly, we may all end up like what we criticize. <laughs> we may all end up like what we criticize. We will soon see that subsequently they began to oppose those who voiced complaints against some of these practices. In fact, they banished many of them to other neighboring settlements. That was why the history of the Puritans did not really last long. But while they were, I mean, existing as this colony, they did a very wonderful job at ensuring that Christianity spread in a very good way. Okay. Let us consider a few other interesting things about this Puritan guys. Church services were held in the morning and afternoon on Sunday. And it was usually a midweek service. The ruling elders and deacons sat facing the congregation on a raised seat. It was the Puritans that brought that idea. Some churches still practice it today. So all the pastors will sit down and face the congregation. How many of you can relate to that? Okay. Uh, men and women sat on opposite sides of the meeting house. So male here, female here. I went to one church like that. I didn't know that that was the setup. This was a deeper life church. I know I saw some fine girls. I want to sit down beside them. <laughs> the usher nearly slapped me. Like, stand up! I was like, what happened? See, can't you see that this is for female session? I did not. I, I, when I went to church, I just I didn't see male or female per se. I just saw Christian. But I did not know that there was a gender splitting. The Puritans were like that. They, they were very conservative. Their dressing, the way they spoke, the way they did their church life. I like, however, one particular thing I saw here. The children sat in their own section under the oversight of somebody called a Titan man. Everybody say Titan man. This man corrected 
unruly children and sleeping adults with a long koboko. I, when I saw that, I said, ah! Oh! It's a, it's a good church. A good church. So as you are sleeping, Oramo cord will just... You just see the Oramo cord on your neck in church. So this is church. You don't sleep here. They were very disciplined. Very, very disciplined. Unruly children, nobody shouts. They are in church. They are shouting. They are telling you, please, now, pastor is preaching. Don't shout. When the Oramo cord reaches your neck, you're going to say they don't shout for here. Very organized, very disciplined. Sleeping adults and unruly children corrected with a long staff. The pastor opened the service with a prayer for about 15 minutes. The teacher then read and explained the selected Bible passage. So they selected the Bible passage, they will read it and explain it. And the ruling elder then led in singing a psalm, usually from the Bay Psalm book. The Bay Psalm book was the first book published in the entire United States of America. They were giving extremely to education. I will soon show you a few other things in that direction. The pastor then preached for an hour or more, and the teacher ended the service with a prayer and benediction. In churches with only one minister, the morning someone was devoted to the argument. When you hear the phrase argument, we're talking about interpreting the text of the Bible. So if I pick Matthew 5.14, and I begin to say, we're sitting set on a hill, we cannot be hit. That's an argument. That is explaining a text. Then, the afternoon sermon was given to the application of that text. So, morning session will explain Matthew 14, general principle. Afternoon session will explain its personal implication, personal application. That was how the Britons around their church. I love it. Love it. You cannot have ignorant people there, at least compared to the general setup of those days. They were given too much study. The Puritans almost immediately after arriving in America in 1630 set up schools for their sons. They also set up what we called dame schools for their daughters. And in other cases taught their daughters at home how to read. As a result, listen, Americans were the most literate people in the world. That's why I say it. Christianity will not just affect church, it will affect society. America, till today, America is the most literate nation in the world. Why? Because a set of people called Puritans invaded the place. And they, one of the reasons why they gave themselves to study was because they wanted every Puritan child to read and understand the Bible. That was another way they differed from the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church said it was only for bishops and priests. You don't have to lean, read the Bible. They said, we will learn every language. If the Bible is written in Latin, we will learn it. It was the Puritans that actually established Harvard University yeah. and Yale University. They, they were so, they were given to education. <laughs> in fact, in those days, if you are a pastor, you must also be a village headmaster. You can't come, you must combine church education and other forms of education. So there was no room for liberal ideologies. Say, um, in school, I learned how to masturbate. It's not, no, no, it's not possible. Although, Harvard University has become a, <laughs> a mass factory for <laughs> different kinds of rubbish now. But when I read it, I was smart. So it was the Puritans that began this school. And then look at it, has been hijacked by the entire American society now has been hijacked. But the Puritans played a very important role. That's why the founding fathers of the American church, eh, 
many of the American nation, rather, many of them believed, practiced, talks about it. In fact, even their constitution is greatly linked to the Ten Commandments. And it was because of the influence of the Puritans. Are we still together here? By the time of the American Revolution, there were 14 newspapers in the United States. There was a time when there were only two cities, New York and Philadelphia, with as many as 20,000 people in them. The Puritans set up a college about university only six years after arriving in the United States. By the time of the Revolution, the United States had 10 colleges, when England had only two. See, England that has been an old country, had only two colleges. Once the Puritans entered the United States, they had 10 colleges. They drove education like, see, let me tell you this. Christianity is not for dummies. It's because we don't know history, that's why they think that Christianity is for dummies. No, it's not for dollars. We, we, we ask, your father is excellent. Amen. Amen. Christianity is not for dollars. Because the subject of faith can be taught like, it's just hard, it's just hard. Yeah, there's not much logic involved. Christian, the, the founding fathers were smart people. You read the books of John Calvin, you know these people were smart people. They were not, they were not dons. Don't believe the lie that Christianity is for good, I don't have sense. Now we get sense pass. Amen. Now we get sense pass. And anybody who knows this tree knows the truth. Puritans were very biblical, so they did not celebrate any holiday that was not in the Bible. For instance, Christmas and Easter was not celebrated. If you don't have a scriptural verse, the Puritan will say, we need one. Show me chapter and verse. If you know the chapter, you know get chapter verse and verse, the Puritans will say, we don't do it. Only scripture. <laughs> that, was the, that was the belief. And of course, we, we can say that that's an extreme stand, but in reality, that's a very good principle to have. I'm not against Christmas. Growing up in poverty, I used to be against Christmas. Because when you grow up seeing everybody eating chicken, and your mother is giving you Gary, you will hate. Every time it was Christmas time, the nostalgia feeling, the nostalgic feeling of suffering comes to mind. It was suffering because of comparisons. There will be parties going on in other people's house. We'll be drinking Gary at home. So I hated Christmas. Like, every other day, all the children suffer together. But during Christmas, some children will enjoy, some other ones will suffer. I don't, I hate it. Once it is November like this, that, you know that breeze, you know that Christmas smell? You know it. Once I begin, I say, oh dear, this thing has come again. My wife eventually taught me to like Christmas. We, we won't discuss at the point how to buy Christmas tree. And I began to say, ah, my life has changed. Amy, Christmas tree. <laughs> I hated the sound of that film. Maybe I was a Puritan. <laughs> They didn't believe in Christmas and Easter. However, only few activities were completely condemned by the Puritans. They were greatly opposed to theater. What you call theater, or what we say theater, will refer to cinema in today's generation. There were no TV screens in those days, but we went to public squares and saw some play actings and all that. The Puritans did not like it. I'll tell you why. According to an historian, Bruce Daniels, he claimed that they saw it as false recreation because they exhausted rather than relaxed the audience. How many of you have watched some movies and you were more afraid after watching it? That's why the Puritans say, no, they watch film. 
He said it's false recreation. They will promise you pleasure, but when you after watching it, you'll be tired. You'll be afraid. You'll be scared. Now, I'm still recreation. If it's supposed to relax you, you're supposed to watch it and feel happy and feel relaxed. How can you watch and you watch it and you feel more tensed? You watch the movie, you're not suspecting your neighbor. In that movie I watch. There are many people with suspicious mentality because of the film. The film. Film. So the preacher say, this cinema film is rubbish. We don't believe in it. All forms of gambling were illegal. Not only were card playing, dice throwing, and other forms of gambling seen as contrary to the values of family, work, and honesty, they were religiously offensive because gamblers implicitly asked God to intervene in trivial matters. And according to the Puritans, violated the third commandment against taking the name of the Lord in vain. What does that mean? If somebody go and play bet, say Chelsea will win tomorrow. If Chelsea is losing 2 0, you begin to pray, oh God. The Puritans are like, how do you bring God into your ridiculous game of soccer? How do you pray to God? How do you, how do you take the name of God in vain for such trivialities? And they, they, they strongly condemned gambling. I like this phrase, however. Anything contrary to values of family, work, and honesty. In the environment where the Puritans settled and began to spread, Massachusetts, and what is called New England, it is referred to as the most industrious part of America. You hardly see lazy people there. You hardly see idle, idle people there. Because the, the founding fathers, as it were, with the Puritans, set in a culture of hard work, family values, diligence, honesty. Crime rates were reduced. Everybody was trained to be honest. In fact, in raising their children, they were very, very harsh. Just like we learned about Susanna Wesley, who also had Puritan roots. They were very, in fact, this was extra, very hostile, very harsh. Children had to just obey their parents. As long as you're under the roof of your father, in fact, you can go to jail for disobeying your parents. Remember that Christian laws and government laws under their influence were merged. So it was that serious. Some of you want to thank God you were not born in that era. Because, uh, based on the number of disobedience, you have disobeyed your parents. Maybe you'll be doing 60 years in jail just because you were born to a Puritan family. <laughs> Hallelujah. Yeah. However, the Puritan legacy did not last as long as it's supposed to last or it was supposed to last or designed to last because of a couple of things. One of which was the extremism in intolerance. They did not permit opposing voices. They were bent on creating a city on a hill that cannot be hit. And so when people come in and try to settle and say, I want to try like this, they will punish, they will punish them. Say, say, go, come out. Go Philadelphia. No stay around Massachusetts. No want you. Come out. Go New York. Go Washington. No, no stay here. They did not tolerate any opposing view even if it came from their own person, one of their own leaders began to complain about the fact that when the Puritans entered New England and Massachusetts, they did not buy land from the original settlers, which was a cause of war. They would just come and they would sit down. They would carry one wood and begin to build a house. And they might have been doing it on somebody's land. They did not consult the village chief that were there and say, we want to settle here, we came all the way from England. 
please, how much is your property? So they'll just take it. They believe they had a special covenant with God like Israel. You know the way Israel conquered Philistines and Amalekites? That's the way they live. The entire place, the Lord is with us. We'll take the land. Ah. Which land? So there were a lot of battles and fightings. And because the original settlers had no conscience, they were very brute people. <laughs> the kind of wars and violence that took place in those days, many Puritans actually suffered and died because of that. But this particular leader was complaining and said, we shouldn't be grabbing land and using style to take people's properties in the name of establishing a city on a hill. Abba, where could they pay for them? They pursued him. Say, you this guy, you don't want to submit. They pursued him. They banished him to another town. He went to settle in another town. But he still, he succeeded where he went to and still set up a good Puritan community there. There was also an event called the Salem Witch Trials. Salem Witch Trials. It is a very popular event, a prominent event, even in today's generation. And many people have identified the Puritans with this event alone. They say, ah, I want Puritans. Now them, they kill people where they say they're witches. The Salem Witch Trials was um, something that took place under the Puritan governmental influence. It was an unfortunate incident. It began when three young ladies began to do some form of awkward expressions that were not normal. For instance, they began to express themselves in animal sounds. <laughs> so, young girls, about 10, 12, 13, and then they called the girls and they began to ask them questions. Most likely, because the questioning was too much, the girls now said, eh, a witch came and visited us and we began to talk like this. Whether that was true or not, we can never know. But once now, the Puritans had a very strong belief in the supernatural, especially in negative supernatural. They believed the devil a lot. They believed in witches and wizards a lot. So when they heard that three young girls said a witch visited them and gave them the ability to speak, and it could be that the girls were just catching cruise. Could it could be that. Talk on sharing you. But they, they took it to the next level. They said, eh! They began to witch hunt. They arrested hundreds of people and executed 20 people accusing them of witchcraft. It was a sad day for the Puritan age, as it were. Eventually, they discovered that most of these things were just suspicions that was not based on any real evidence, so they stopped it. But it is still edged in history as a very unfortunate event <laughs> that has been used to characterize the Puritan movement. And many people today still dismiss them as those who killed innocent people in the name of witchcraft. Uh, so things like this, some of these extremisms eventually made, it, made the Puritan movement fizzle out of society. Another issue was that they insisted, like I said earlier, only those that were full members of the church would vote. People that were born in the next generation, although they believed in infant baptism, until they could provide a public witness of their conversion, they did not call them, call them full members of the church. So those people could not vote. And so they, they began to riot and protest until the Puritans now broke their own laws and said, okay, 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 
everybody can now come to church. Everybody can now become members of the church. So once they dropped their standards, their original beliefs was diluted. And then all those strict disciplines of raising children, of being conservative, they could no longer practice it in the next generation. Are we still together here? All right. So that's just a good foundation to understand the Puritans in America. Let's go on to somebody who came from a Puritan background, a man called Jonathan Edwards. We are still discussing Christianity in America. We've seen the Puritans, how they shaped America, especially with respect to education, values of labor and diligence and honesty. Jonathan Edwards was born into a Puritan family. He was the only male child out of 11 children. That's, that's very wonderful. You have plenty ladies to pet you, sing for you, dance for you. I mean, ladies are more interesting than guys. How many of you agree with me? Some of you disagree. That's fine. I'm the pastor. Jonathan was obviously fond of ladies from day one because only guy in a family of 11. Everybody say 11. 11 children. His family suffered much from the attacks from the Native Americans. His uncles were kidnapped, his aunties were killed in many of those wars and battles. But he survived, and um, his father, Timothy Edwards, was the local pastor. Once you're a local pastor, you have to also be the village headmaster. So Jonathan Edwards was privileged to have his father as his pastor and his teacher at the same time. So father, pastor, teacher. <laughs> Timothy Edwards was such a man. His father ensured that Jonathan was well-educated. He learned Greek, Hebrew, and Latin in his early teenage years. His father, of course, as a Puritan, was a very strong Calvinist, believing in the doctrine and preaching the doctrine of predestination. One of the things that those Calvinists thought was that if you are truly saved, there are three different stages. But the last stage was a consistent Christian practice that was not seen. When Jonathan Edwards entered into teenage years, in fact from age 10, he was already given to several sins. So he began to question if he was part of the predestined people. Like, maybe I'm not part of them. And so he was really contemplating whether he should have any business with Christianity. Even though with the training he had received, he was exposed to lots of Christian conversations and doctrinal teachings, as it were. Well, he eventually grew up, knew better, also became a pastor and met a woman, Sarah by name, married her. This particular marriage is one of the most influential marriages in American history. The Jonathan Edwards marriage was like the example of marriage. In fact, it was Jonathan Edwards' marriage that encouraged George Whitefield to marry. Sarah was a follower of George Whitefield. I'll explain to Whitefield how we entered into the American Christianity picture soon. Jonathan Edwards um, kept in touch with George Whitefield. I'll soon show you how that happened. But when George Whitefield visited their home, 
He said, Kai, this marriage is sweet to me, self, I go marry. We are not sure if his own marriage was sweet like this. But um, I like to read the words of Jonathan Edwards with respect to his marriage. He said, Sarah's conversation entertained me. Her spirit, spirit encouraged my spiritual life. And her presence brought me peace. Uh, be, tell your neighbor, be like Sarah. If you say woman, a woman. No, they find trouble. Let, let your presence bring peace. Eh? And he says, I like, he says, he says, a conversation entertained me. I like that. I like that. Look, look at this next statement here. He says he had great respect for his wife and for his wife's thoughts. So that each night he would read to her what he had written that day and listen to her response before they had devotions together. So by 9 a.m., if I wrote something in my Bible notes, I would take it to her and read. I said, What do you have to say? They were just partners. And yes, they came from a Puritan background. And once again, the whole idea of the Puritans hating joy and happiness is not true. They had strong family values, but it's not like they were anti joy, they were anti liberalism, but not, certainly not anti happiness. Are we still together here? This particular marriage has been used to analyze and to examine how good marriages can produce a great effect in society. The Edwards marriage is compared to a particular man's life, Max Jukes. And I read it one day when we were teaching about, I'm not sure what we were teaching that day, but I read comparing Jonathan Edwards' life and Max Jukes. They both lived in the same era. But look at what Jonathan Edwards produced. His lineage. 13 college presidents, 65 college professors, 75 military officers. I'm talking about several generations after. This guy, 17th century man, but several generations after, this is what he produced. 80 public servants, 60 authors, 60 doctors, 30 judges, 100 pastors, 100 lawyers, 3 United States senators, 2 vice presidents. Just from this marriage between Edwards and Sarah, ask your neighbor, what will your marriage produce? Look at Max Jukes. They lived at the same time. 310 died as paupers. 150 criminals. 7 murderers. 100 drunks. 190 prostitutes. Marriage is powerful. Marriage is powerful. Society, <laughs> it is marriage that invents society. Yet, today's liberal world will say Puritans are anti-happiness, they're anti-joy. So it's Max Duke's legacy of liberalism that produces prostitutes and drunks. Is, that what, is this what produces happiness? Conservativeness is a good thing. We, you see, we can rubbish it because we young people are always like, do as I like, be you, be you, be you. Now be you produce prostitutes, now be you produce criminals, be you. We need strong moral values. Are you listening to me? Yeah. And Jonathan Edwards' family is a classic example. This liberalism ideology is, is, destruct, is destructive. People don't know. The society can never improve in a liberal atmosphere. Never. Never. When people are told to just do what they like, enjoy themselves. We should see it in Jonathan Edwards' ministry, how he was. He had to confront several of these things. Hallelujah to Jesus. 
The year after Jonathan became assistant pastor at his grandfather's church, that's in Northampton, all of New England experienced the great earthquake of 1727. According to some accounts, it began with a flash of light followed by rumbling and shaking that lasted throughout the night. People who were awakened from their sleep crowded together in the streets believing that Judgment Day had come. It was a religious environment, but there were, there were many people who were still living perverted, sinful lives. Once again, because the next generation of Puritan settlers in New England did not really subscribe to the Puritan theology. So children did what they liked. There was a lot of freedom and all of that. This earthquake was, however, a turning point in this land and even in the entire American history. The next morning after the earthquake, churches were filled. <laughs> I don't know how many of you, you know, not too many of you must have been around during the Lagos bomb blast. There was a time there was a Lagos bomb blast. I was in Egbeda. My mother was in Ekotun. My parents were divorced, so I was with my father in Egbeda. I had better take a cartoon. It's not too far. But if you trek it, it's about three hours. After the bomb blast, my mother began to trek. I must see my child. Because when she heard the bomb blast happening in Keja cantonment, she began to calculate Keja, Egbeda. She began to walk. She walked three hours to three hours through. When she saw me, she said, you are alive. Okay, I'm going back. And I started walking back. Point is that certain tra um, tragedies and national disasters can awake certain virtues. And so after that, after this earthquake happened, everybody went to church the next morning. Hey, hey, hey. The rapture has happened to me. I would not know. Kilo one shall buy you. Are we still together here? The earthquake cursed, shared terror to reign in the hearts of all the residents of Northampton, driving them to seek assurance of their salvation. Fast were called for throughout the land several times in the weeks following. The governor called for a day of fasting and prayer and invited Jonathan Edwards to preach. Jonathan Edwards noticed that many of the people in Northampton, particularly the young people, were very loose. He noticed they were always engaged in what he called frolicking. There were a lot of opposite sex dancing. You know, opposite sex dancing, a lady comes and she's there, a man stands behind and says, <laughs> We are frolicking. What was happening in Jonathan Edwards' lifetime. And he was very angry at it, but he did not know what to say. So when the earthquake happened, and people began to run to church, I said, hey, 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 help us beg God. He used us as an opportunity to preach against things like that. So he challenged the young people, reminded them that God was a God of mercy, and just as the people of Nineveh repented, if they also repent, New England will not be destroyed. As a result of the earthquake, churches throughout the colonies increased in attendance. Some scholars mark this event as the first light of the Great Awakening. Jonathan pastored about a thousand people, and in a general overview, they did not really live very good spiritual life. It caused Jonathan lots of anxiety and worry and even depression. Now, he was the assistant pastor to his grandfather. When his grandfather now died, things became worse. 
congregation seemed totally out of control especially the young people drunkenness was now commonplace and teenage pregnancy was now also commonplace but because the puritan values had been lost in new england they were no in now when i spoke about the massachusetts settlements and new england settlements people were whipped flocked publicly for things like fornication drinking gambling but years after that in the era of jonathan edwards all of that was no longer in place there was now also a societal principle once you get pregnant you just marry so fornication that led to pregnancy was no longer deemed a big deal so it was an opportunity to marry there was no problem with that and so many people were getting many ladies were getting pregnant even in jonathan's church and he was not happy with that there was also the practice like mention of frolicking let me describe it again he says young sons and daughters were allowed to climb the bed together partially dressed and enjoy each other now the first enjoy each other didn't talk about intercourse it was called bundling everybody say bundling they claim that they were only getting acquainted bundling getting acquainted scarcely dressed of course the result was pregnancy when you are acquainted and adam knew his wife adam knew his wife and gave back to Cain. Acquaintance were wasted to pregnancy. So, <laughs> Jonathan Edwards was very frustrated. Then, he began to notice that young people began to die suddenly. And he suspected it was the judgment of God over the territory. So he ensured that every funeral of a young person he went to preach to, he preached against this frolicking and bundling rubbish that was happening. Interestingly, this was what kick-started the revival in America. Funeral services, Jonathan Edwards would go there and say, good, a young person has died again. And he would begin to tell them, how many years did this person live? They say, well, just 18-year-old person. Say, oh. It's the frolicking that's killed them. It's his sins that has destroyed him, and much more than that. How will he give an account of his life? Imagine saying that in a, in a funeral service. You know, in funeral services today, we say good words. Say, what's a good guy? May the Lord grant him rest. Jonathan, not the preacher, guys. Once he confirms this person was not saved, was not in church, he used the opportunity to lambast the young people. They say, we're not going to end up like this. And it's not just about dying young now. The mortality rates, of course, we didn't really live long in those days. But he was saying, if you want to die young, why can't you get to your maker and, and say, I, I lived well? What do you mean for 30? I lived well. What do, you, what do you want to die and go to your maker and you go to your maker as somebody who wasted his life? And so Jonathan began to say that in church and particularly in funeral preaching, he preached against most of the excesses of the young people. And then revival began to happen. Jonathan Edwards now began to include, because he noticed. Young people were interested in church, but church was somehow boring. Because the Puritan doctrine of we only sing psalms was still in place in the church. So Jonathan introduced hymns. He was one of the people that introduced three-part harmony to the American church. Three-part harmony. You don't know what that means? Ask Arams. So he loved the beautiful singing and encouraged it and said, 
Let's write songs. He encouraged them to sing the hymns of Isaac Watts, who is probably one of the most notable hymn writers of, of all ages. Okay. So revival began to happen. Young people converted their parties to prayer meetings. The entire, at the point, Jordan Edwards says, 90% of all the town were now church people. Suddenly, because he took advantage of preaching in funerals of young people. And of course, many of the other things that happened, like the earthquakes and all of that, accumulated and climaxed into this revival. <laughs> I read something very interesting when they were talking about the revival. They said, gossiping stopped. I said, ah. You see, when people say there's revival, <laughs> let's measure it well. Revival, where after they, they do, and people see the gossip, it'll be a revival. Say, the revival shut down gossip. People no longer feel comfortable gossip. You just think about somebody and just start, pray for him, pray for him, pray for him. Prayer meetings were exploding everywhere. Young people just start praying on their own. They didn't have to be invited to the church. All their parties and ceremonies, they converted to, to prayer meetings. Are we still together here? The revival, however, did not last long. Why? Satan amplified the fears of the people and used it to destroy the revival. The revival was supposed to awaken them into the consciousness of reverence. But Satan hijacked it into a consciousness of phobia. So many young people woke up in fear. Many people began to have heart attack. They would all be very afraid, very scared. And so people began to once again backslide and lose sight of the real picture of the gospel. Of course, Jonathan Edwards preached strongly against sin, but that was not all he said. However, in that particular time, that was the message that had to be preached because the young people were very careless and carnal as it were. But Jonathan Edwards noticed his congregation became cold again. He described the people as having eagerness after the possessions of this life and noted that there had been a return of the heated party spirit. He began to pray again for revival. This is 1737. He began to pray again for revival. In 1737, Jonathan began to preach three sermon series that he hoped would turn the heart of the people back to God. Although little happened outwardly, he held on to a glimmer of hope that things were about to change. Jonathan turned to prayer, listening to this statement, spending as many as 18 hours in prayer before he preached one sermon. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards, if you Google him, is renowned for one of the greatest evangelical messages preached, titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I think it was Reverend George who said he wanted to confirm what was exactly was in the sermon. Because I'll soon show you the impact of the sermon. The impact of this sermon was crazy. Like crazy. Till today it's still spoken about, spoken about as the perhaps the most impactful evangelical sermon delivered. It was not the sermon, it was the prayer. Before he preached one sermon, 18 hours of prayer. Ah. It was not the sermon. When the Reverend George opened the sermon, he said, Is this it? He said, That's it. How can this sermon be responsible for the conversion of several thousands of people? It was not the sermon, it was the prayer. 18 hours, it began. Ah, may our generation find truth again. 
these days where people come on stage just to perform. <laughs> there's, that's why there's no convicting power. It's the convicting power. Ah. If we're going to turn the world upside down or turn his right side up, I will pray. Remember, it's not by selfies. It's prayer. 18 hours before one sermon. Uh-uh. I read that and I was ashamed. I was ashamed. Like, what? Uh, there's work to do. Impact. I was going to show you how this <laughs> message was preached and the interesting thing about it. Jonathan Edwards invited George Whitefield. One of the reasons invited George Whitefield was because the young people complained that the preaching of those days were boring. <laughs> and actually they were. However, I will show you the balance of that. Let's talk about George Whitefield a bit, just a bit. Is perhaps the, greater, the greatest preacher that ever preached in America. In his days, there was nobody who did not know John Whitefield. John Whitefield was like Michael Jackson. Like his fame was everywhere. This young boy, when he was a little child, had a desire to be an actor. A dramatist but he did not have money to go and learn it in school so he stayed in his mother's shop who was divorced double divorcee actually helped her to sell a guru one day the mother heard that in Oxford he can be a student worker so he went to Oxford University as a student worker he would work and use it to pay his school fees. Are we still together? Because he wanted to be an actor. <laughs> he will go and listen to preachers. Not because he's interested in the word of God. Because he wants to mimic them and act. But as he was listening, the word of God was entering. <laughs> he went there to mimic them. When he hears them, he will go to his sister and say, See, let me act like that preacher. And every time he spoke, he will feel like... This is the way that man talk not true. As I talk I'm now, I feel like, I feel like. The word of God is powerful. <laughs> powerful. And so he began to tell his sister that I, I, think, I think I may end up being a preacher, even though I know I'm not good enough. But at Oxford University, um, he eventually became a bit more serious. And when he was 18, he was a very good guy, really good guy. And many people who wanted help because of his humility and hard-working etiquette always came to him. So one woman was going to commit suicide and she dropped the note. Um, George Whitefield saw the note and told her, please, I heard there's a place called Holy Club led by John Wesley and Charles Wesley. Please, don't commit suicide. Go and talk to them. I don't know about God, but those guys know God. Come talk to them. He now told the woman, please don't tell them that I'm the one that sent you. I still want to jai a female. Just, just go and meet them. The woman went there and reported. Say one guy called George Redfield sent me to you. 
Well, Charles Wesley looked for him, picked him up, and brought him to the Holy Club. That's how he joined the Holy Club at 18. And Charles Wesley gave him quite a number of books to read. Although he was a good guy, of course he was not saved. In one of those books he was reading, he read something that the author wrote. And these are his words. He says, I wondered what the author meant by saying, some falsely placed religion in going to church, doing hurt to no one, being constant in the duties of the closet, and now and then preaching or reaching out their hands to give alms to the poor. Alas, I thought, if this is not religion, then what is it? God soon showed me, for in reading a few lines further, that true religion was a union of the soul with God and Christ formed within us. A ray of divine light instantaneously darted upon my soul. And from that moment, I knew I must become a new creature. So just by reading a book, John Whitefield discovered, all oh, this is my, I'm a good guy, I'm a humble guy. It's not salvation. I must be born again. So he became a little bit more acquainted with the real gospel. In fact, he got, he got born again before the Wesley brothers, actually, even though he was their disciple. But because the Wesley brothers and the Methodist club, the Holy Club, like we learned last week, was still running, he returned to legalism. Remember, before John Wesley and Charles Wesley got saved, they ran the Holy Club as a legalistic movement. And he was part of that club. Even though he found the gospel, he went back for nurturing and they returned him back to legalism. But when he fell sick one day and he could not do anything for a couple of weeks, he began to meditate again on the former books he read. And he returned or he, he was restored in the joy of salvation and began to preach it. At age 21, he began to preach full time, aggressively. Um, he was ordained on his first, after his first sermon, after his ordination, 15 people were reported to run mad after listening to his preaching. Ask me how. The running of mad was like, what, we happen, what happened on Sunday? Yeah! My sin! And they were shouting on the streets. Who says this was a mad dude? It was going to characterize John Whitefield and John Wesley's preaching, but it began on his ordination, actually. This particular ecstasy, screaming, drunkenness began from John Whitefield's ordination. Everybody now began to take note of the guy that, the guy that runs people mad after preaching. It wasn't like that was his intention, but that was the way the Holy Spirit walked through him. Are we getting this, right? Remember from last week that John Wesley went to America first. Is that not so? So Wesley invited John Whitefield and said, come to America. Remember that John Wesley failed in America. Is that not so? He failed because he did not understand the gospel and was preaching method. But John Whitefield knew better. When he got there, he succeeded. How did he succeed? He showed compassion to the people. He did not preach law. He taught the real gospel. He set up an orphanage home. The orphanage home is still running today. It's the oldest orphanage home in America. He went back to England to raise offerings for the orphanage home and to run charities. So every time he preaches, he would give charity. And so the people felt the love of God, not just the wrath of God, as it were. And that was how John, um, John Wise's ministry spread in America. It was 
in clear terms, the most popular preacher in America. He was just 24 when he was the greatest evangelist in American history. Just 24. He was called the boy preacher by some of his critics. At the point he went to preach one day, and everybody was going to say, you know the way they despise young preachers? Like, what does he have to say now? He noticed that they were looking like that, but he continued. That's what 1 Timothy 4.12 says. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example in charity, in faith, in purity. He continued, he continued, he continued. Okay, so I was talking about the fact that Jonathan Edwards invited George Whitefield. So I spoke a little bit about George Whitefield so you can understand him. George Whitefield's dramatic preaching was from his ambition to become a dramatist. Do you understand that? That was why he was very dramatic in preaching. <laughs> when he preaches, he doesn't preach like Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards actually reads. He read the someone. George was very animated. Very See, he was so dramatic. Everybody enjoyed hearing him. And of course, it was not just drama. There was a lot of power, conviction in the Holy Ghost. So Jonathan Edwards invited John Whitefield to his environments to come and preach. And a great revival took place afterwards. These were the words of a witness of some of the events. Since there were some instances of people lying in a sort of trance, remaining there for 24 hours, motionless with their senses locked up but in the meantime under strong imaginations as though they went to heaven and had their visions of glorious and delightful objects so wherever your rightful went this was the kind of ecstasy or ecstatic experience that took place in his preachings are we still together here i'm almost done i'm almost done i'm almost done after the revival took place by the collaboration between edwards and whitefield Edwards did not want the revival to be stolen again. One of the reasons why the revival of New England happened by George Whitefield's preaching was that while Jonathan Edwards often emphasized God's judgment against sinners, Whitefield emphasized God's mercy to sinners. It was a wonderful combination, showing us it were the two sides of God. And so many people subscribed more to his messages, and the revival continued. Now, this particular someone we have been referencing, sinners in the hands of an God, an angry God, July 8, 1741. There was a gathering of people seeking salvation. It was like a crusade, let's just call it a crusade. And Jonathan was among the scheduled preachers. He was told that morning that he was going to preach it. He did not know what to preach exactly, but he checked his bag and then he saw his someone that he preached some weeks earlier to his congregation when he preached it first when he preached this summer first his congregation people were sleeping they were not interested in it after the summer people came and said nice one you try but he just felt preach it again preach it again so pick it up now because he did not want to look like he's imitating george whitefield in drama he decided to just read it this sermon was read. It was not even preached. It was just read. As simply as possible. No aggressive tone. No, just, just read. The impact was outrageous. Thousands upon thousands of people got saved just by this sermon. 
However, this someone in our generation has become controversial because some people have said um, he was emphasizing hell. Yes, he did emphasize hell, but you can Google it. The sermon referred to the fact that God's hands were holding sinners from going to hell. Now, George Whitefield, rather, Jonathan Edwards, was a very, very intelligent, in fact, maybe the most intelligent preacher in American history. If he was not a preacher, he would have been a scientist. In fact, he ended, after this sermon and a couple of other weeks that followed, or months that followed, he was sacked in his church. He died as a professor or as a college professor. He was very smart. Very, very smart. In his smartness, he was very good with words. So he had the capacity to describe certain things with words. Writing. In fact, one of the reasons the England revival was sustained was that somebody asked Jonathan Edwards to document how revival happened in his town. So Jonathan Edwards just wrote it. Just, just the right report. It eventually became a textbook on how to start a revival. It's still read today. He was very good at documentation. Very good at it. So when he read that sermon, and in the sermon he described the horrors of hell and how God was holding back sinners from going to hell. The modern theologians have condemned it and said uh, he did not preach gospel of love and light. However, let me say it. If he saves a soul, it is good. Amen. If he saves a soul, it is good. And so, and so, and so. After that, someone, several other things took place in New England and extended into other parts of America. But this is how God used Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield to really establish a solid Christian foundation in the United States of America. That's that for today's class. We trust that you've been blessed by this teaching. We look forward to receiving your testimonies, prayer requests, and feedback. You can send us a mail at judamaye at yahoo.com. That is J-U-D-A-H-M-A-Y-E at yahoo.com. Till next time, remain in the consciousness of God's word and power. Thank you.